Um, last week we took a minute, well not a minute, it took a few minutes to um, look at the life of somebody who uh, is in the line of Christ. And I thought given that we're coming up upon Christmas, we'd do that. Last week it was Rahab, but t- today we're going to be in Luke 2, which is a, a Christmas passage, a Christmas text. Luke 2 is where we find the birth of Christ in Luke. And, of course, we've been through Luke 2 already a long time ago now uh, in our study on Sunday mornings. But this morning I want to talk about a woman by the name of Anna. And um, Luke 2 just gives us three verses about her, and that's all we get of her in the whole Bible. But what comes across in these three verses in the context they're written in is a woman who had great faith and a woman who had great expectations for the one God was going to send. So just to get some context, we'll start reading in verse 21. She's not until the last three verses of the chapter, but I think if we start at verse 21, it gives us a pretty good context of what's going on. And when eight days had passed, meaning eight days since he was born, Before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons... And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, Then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, This child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So the setting for Anna's encounter with Jesus is Simeon's encounter with Jesus. And if you look and see how Simeon is described in verse 25, he's righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. This was before the Holy Spirit was in the hearts of all believers permanently. So this was a very significant event in his life. Um, He was a man who 
loved the Lord, he worshiped the Lord, and he was fervent in his faith. He was and because he was fervent in his faith, he was looking for Yahweh's Messiah. He was looking for the Lord's Christ, as Luke puts it in verse 26. Um, that said, few in Israel recognized Jesus as the Messiah, and we know that. But that's ironic because expectations for the Messiah coming were um, maybe a fever pitch is too strong a term, but they were a little bit stronger than normal in the first century Israel. Not only did you have the Roman Empire occupying, but over 500 years earlier, the angel Gabriel, um, the same a- the same angel who uh, appeared to Mary and Joseph, also appeared to Daniel um, while Daniel was in Babylon, in exile. And it's in Daniel 9 that we read about Gabriel's pronouncement to Daniel that Messiah... The prince, he calls him, Messiah the prince, is going to come. And the date of his arrival is practically set at that moment. Um, What Gabriel told Daniel back in in chapter 9 was that Israel was going to have a specific amount of time set aside for them. And I'm not going to, someday we'll have to spend some quality time on this, and I've alluded to it in the past, but... um, just to summarize that prophecy from the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which is what we read about in Nehemiah chapter 2, Gabriel said there would be a period of 70 weeks of years, 70 groups of seven years. And 69 of these years would come, and then there'd be another set of years. But 69 just to times 7 is 483. And so there'd be 483 years until the Messiah would be cut off, is what Gabriel tells Daniel. And that's a reference, of course, to the crucifixion, Messiah being cut off. And without getting into all the math, and Hebrew year being 360 days, and there being all kinds of things going on, that 483 years runs right up to AD 30 when Jesus Christ was crucified. Um, so you would expect that people who knew about this prophecy, and of course they should have known it because Daniel was considered scripture in first century Israel, you would expect if they knew about it and believed Daniel's prophecy that there would at least be some who were starting to look for this one who would come. And that is what we find here in Luke chapter 2. In fact, in the next chapter, Luke 3.15 tells us the people were in a state of expectation and wondering whether or not John the Baptist was the Christ. So people were ready and and looking for the one God promised. They, Not everybody, but there was a group of people, and more sizable than normal probably, that was eagerly looking for the one that was promised to come. And, and even more so if they had paid attention to Gabriel's announcement to Daniel. And so that put Simeon in a little bit of context because he was righteous and devout and looking and hoping for the consolation of Israel. But because most people's expectations of what Messiah would be didn't match up with what God had said, of course what we've seen in Luke is that they missed him when he came. Most people missed him when he came. Uh, He did not come as a powerful military leader or a conquering king. Jesus did not come to free Israel from Roman oppression at least not yet we still await that day as we saw on Sunday so 
Most missed him when he came. In fact, the only Jews who understood who Jesus was when he was born, think about this. King Herod didn't understand who he was. The the only people of any kind of somewhat nobility that would have understood that this boy was special were the Magi from the East. But if you look at just Jews, it's nobodies like Mary and Joseph and someone like Simeon who uh, was just kind of there. Um, shepherds visited by angels. And all, all of these people, by the way, how did they find out that this boy was special? They got direct revelation from God about it in one way or the other. So um, Simeon had it revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he had laid eyes on the Lord's Christ. And that's the Hebrew translate, uh, the Greek translation of Messiah. So we got that going here. Luke, by the way, gives us more witnesses to Jesus as Messiah as a child than anyone else. And the, and the last of those witnesses is Anna. Simeon's at the temple when Mary and Joseph bring Jesus in. He takes Jesus in his arms. He blesses God. He prophesies. And it happens that while Anna was there, she sees this and hears this happen. And what do we know about Anna? We see in the midst of the three verses that talk about her that she was someone who never left the temple. And so if she never left the temple, she no doubt knew who Simeon was. She was a fervent believer herself. She uh, was righteous and devout. Uh, She probably had heard Simeon on numerous occasions tell of the promise he'd received from the Holy Spirit uh, that he would see the Christ. So when you add that knowledge to what fervent Jews knew about Daniel's prophecy, Anna's expectations probably were at a fever pitch. They were probably very much raised in comparison to other people. And that sets the stage for these three verses, what they tell us about her. And the first thing we find out is that she was a prophetess. She was a a female prophet. Most times in the Bible when we see prophets, they are males, but there are times where women prophesy in the Bible. Uh, We'll see in the book of Acts there are some prophetesses there. Um, Hannah, the mother of Samuel, over a thousand years prior to this point, just like Anna here, her name means grace, and like Hannah, she, she prophesied. In First in, in Samuel chapter 2, we read Hannah had this prayer. Now, remember Hannah was, uh, was barren. The Lord blessed her with, with a child, Samuel. She praises God, and it's a prayer, but it, it, it's praising God. But she's not just praising God because, hey, you gave me this child. She's praising God for his goodness. She praises God in that prayer for his holiness for his provision and she's always very mu- or she's also very much forward looking in that prayer to the day when Yahweh would give his strength to the king and and I encourage you to go back and read that prayer tonight 1 Samuel 2 1 through 10 and he will exalt the horn of his anointed she says so Hannah she's living a thousand years prior to Jesus being born she is a woman with messianic expectations And now this Anna, alive at the time of Christ, has that same kind of fire about her. Um, She gets word from God. Um, 
there there's no no need to kind of justify that that she's a prophetess she she's getting direct revelation from god here and uh what we see is in times of new things happening in Israel, he sends his prophets. And Anna's not a prophetess in the same sense that maybe Elijah was. But uh, here we see that she's getting a word from the Lord, just like he's revealed himself to Zechariah and uh, Zechariah, uh, the father of John the Baptist. And, and so uh, we see that. Next thing we see about her is that she was a daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, which is a seemingly obscure detail um but not devoid of meaning now something interesting about this mention is that aside aside from revelation 7 revelation 7 is this chapter that speaks of the 12 tribes of israel and they there's going to be 144,000 witnesses 144,000 jewish evangelists that are spoken of in revelation chapter 7 during the time of great tribulation but the, the 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 tribe of Asher is mentioned there along with the other 11 tribes. That is the only other reference in all of the New Testament to the tribe of Asher. This is the only other one uh, here mentioning um, Anna. Now, from our Genesis study, we know that Asher, we know a few things about Asher. We know that Asher was the eighth son of Jacob. He was the son of Zilpah. Um, uh, Leah's made. Something else we know about Asher is that when the, the kingdom of Israel divided in two, it was the tribe of Asher was one of those tribes that went along with all the tribes to the north that rebelled against the Davidic king. They went with Jeroboam in the north against Rehoboam in the south. And, and so you have Israel and you have Judah and Asher was a part of that northern kingdom. We also know that in 722 B.C., Second Kings 17, the nation of Assyria comes in. They basically wipe out the northern kingdom. The ten tribes are scattered all over the place. Some are exiled to Assyria, some just scatter. And so the, the tribe of Asher is among them, so they sort of just off the face of the earth. Well, not, not, not completely off the face of the earth, but you just don't hear about them. So it is grace that any of the descendants from Asher remain at the time of Christ. And here's Anna identified by her tribe whose ancestors were probably, they may have been left in the land, maybe maybe a few of them not exiled, but either way, her mention as being from the tribe of Asher is not a meaningless detail, but it, it shows that God is still with Israel after all this time, and he's not just with the tribes in the south, he's with the tribes from the north too, and, and and he's bringing someone from Asher in to testify of his Messiah. Next, we see that Anna was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. Now, the Greek is a little bit ambiguous. It could mean that she was 84 years old at this time or it could mean that she was a widow for 84 years. The English translations, it depends on your what it says there the point is though she had been a widow for a very long time probably at least 60 years um, so what is relevant is that she married for seven years her husband died and then she became a widow and if we look at what the bible says about widows in scripture 
in, in these times, it meant that she had a very hard life. Um, Naomi and Ruth, they were both widowed, right? And they came back to Israel with pretty much nothing, but God looked after them, and Boaz became the kinsman redeemer there, and eventually um, Ruth is folded into the genealogy of Jesus Christ, another one who's who's in the genealogy of Jesus Christ mentioned. Um, Anna has no such redeemer uh, a thousand years later, and that meant that she probably had a very hard life because to be a widow pretty much guaranteed that you were spending your life in poverty in, in these days. Um, John MacArthur, in his commentary on first, uh, well, on, on on this passage, he points out that this is a reason why Paul, in First Timothy five fourteen, urged young widows to remarry. If if you were a younger widow, you were supposed to remarry so that the church wouldn't be overburdened with support because to be a widow meant you needed support. Um, So how did Anna get by? Well, it could be that she had a family inheritance to sustain her. It could be that she lived off of charity of others, which is more likely in what would have been a very frugal and sober life. But she remains faithful. And it would seem her hope was not in the current state of Israel. Luke tells us she never left the temple. The way it's phrased there is emphatic. She never herself left the temple. So it it would appear that she actually lived on the temple grounds, which uh, there was a short time in my life. I actually lived on church property when I was about 19 years old, 18, 19 years old. But uh, this, it was possible for her to do this. Nehemiah chapter 13 tells us that there were rooms in the court of the temple um, probably like studio apartments of the ancient Near East, and priests would use those rooms when they went in for their time of service. You know, we see in, in Luke one where Zacharias was there for his two week stint. The way they were doing the rotation of of the priest, and it could be that uh, because if she was a widow, someone very needy, and someone committed to ministry, that she was allowed to stay in one of these rooms, and so God provided for her. And she didn't view the grace of God as mere welfare, but her life was one, it would appear, of fervent worship. She never left the temple, serving day and night with fastings and prayers. It shows a very active faith, a very dependent faith. Um, And that is what marks her life here in these very short verses we have about her. Her life was not one of self-gratification, but of constant sacrifice bringing the sacrifice of prayer, bringing uh, fasting. Um, and and what, would, what is it she would have prayed about? What was she so fervent about? Well, she probably played, prayed for many things, but it would seem given her inclusion at this point in Luke's gospel and how Anna responds when she sees the baby Jesus, that she is seeing an answer to her prayers, that she was praying that the Messiah would come. Um, Luke is referring to Simeon's blessing and prophecy as he held the baby in his arms when he writes that at that very moment she, Anna, came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Why would she give thanks to God unless she believed in his promises in the Old Testament? Why would she give thanks unless... 
she was taking the word of God seriously. Why would she give thanks unless she believed that this baby was the one whom God had sent? Uh, We're not told specifically any of the supernatural revelation that Anna received. We're just told that she was a prophetess. But given her presence in the temple, given that she probably had enough confidence in Simeon's faith to know that if he believed this was the one, that this was the one, Anna was not like most Jews of her day who had in one way or another fallen into error. Um, She was not one of these Jews who was complacent about the Messiah coming either. Um, She wasn't like the Pharisees who thought themselves righteous and placed more emphasis on people following their rules than, you know, following God's rules. And she wasn't like the Sadducees who denied things like the resurrection. Anna was not like those who would see Jesus' power on display firsthand and still deny him. Here he is in this humble form of a baby, and she realizes this is God's Messiah. And she accepts him for who he is. But that's not where she stops. It says she continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. In other words, her faith went into evangelism mode you know she goes and says the messiah is here she continued to do this luke says so this was not a one-time thing but for for however long she lived after this her lifestyle was one of telling people about the messiah who had come the one who was first promised to eve in the garden of eden the one who would bruise the the crush the serpent's head the one who who Daniel was told by Gabriel would make an end to sin. Here he is. He's here. And so the theme of her life becomes the son of Mary. Uh, So uh, now she's doing this. So the question for us, just three short verses here, is, is what kind of application can we make? And there's a list of things that we can do here um, that that we can learn from, from, from Anna. First, she's a prophetess. Okay? And while I don't believe that the gift of prophecy is active today, uh, and that that's a, a deeper study for another time, by the way, um, I do believe it will be active again during the tribulation time, but that, again, is a story for another day. Um, Anna is an example that the words of God should always be in our hearts and in our minds and on our lips because that's what we see from her. And, and so, you know, we need to make sure that what we're thinking, what we're saying, is in concert with what God is bringing to pass. Not not just His will that you know, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, Ephesians four twenty nine, but we need to be speaking about the the plan, the agenda of God for this world, and for not just for this age, but for the age to come when Christ comes. Okay. Um, and, and how often are we talking about that? How often is that the agenda of our lips? That's one thing we see from Anna. Second thing is that we ought to remember that we are descendants of sinners, and we are sinners ourselves, just like Anna was. Uh, it doesn't matter if we come from families that are active in church it, or, or people who have no idea what church is. Anna was the tribe of this rebellious tribe of Asher, uh, uh, she was a child of that tribe. Her descendants had followed Jeroboam, who was a terrible, terrible king. And 
Luke's inclusion of her family history here serves to remind us, because we have no idea who Fanuel was other than this, okay? Uh, Fanuel tribe of Asher. Her inclu- that inclusion of her family history is, is a reminder of God's grace, of our constant need for God's grace, even for those who appear the most righteous and most devout. We, we must constantly be attuned to our own need for grace. Third, Anna's life shows us by example that living a godly life doesn't mean you will live an easy life. And I think in this room we all understand that in our heads. Whether or not we apply that practically is another thing entirely. But, uh, you know, we we can sit here and it's easy to talk about the health and wealth preachers on TV. You've heard me bash a few every now and then. Um, but it's not as easy to live a godly life and admit it might mean being a widow for many, many years or it might mean being poor your whole life or it might mean a life filled with health trials and tribulations. Um, It's easy to say the Lord will provide, but we must remember that He isn't bound by our expectations of provision. His goodness is not affected by our expectations. Um, Anna did not have an easy life if we go by what we read in this text. Um, And yet she remained fervent to the Lord, serving day and night. Fourth, just as Anna never left the temple grounds, partly because she was dependent upon temple officials for her provisions most likely, it strikes me that we ought not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, which is what Hebrews 10 speaks of. Um, I guess I'm preaching to the proverbial choir tonight because you're here. But when the church is assembled, unless you can't be here, you should be here. I think that's what the Bible teaches. I think that's the, the what we see in Scripture. I think that's my own pastoral conviction um and and so uh, that's what we see anna always there always where the people of god were and where the the presence of god was was felt anna was fervent in fastings and prayers um fifth um fastings and prayers the bible does not command the new testament does not command us to fast i want to be clear about that um but the Bible, the New Testament, definitely commands us to pray. And whether or not you choose to fast is is a personal thing. Whether or not you pray to God is commanded in Scripture. And she was fervent about that. And we ought to follow her examples. May I ask a question? You may. Uh, the value, uh, the place that fasting played, was it to deny self uh, in order to concentrate on worship? Uh, is that the purpose of the fast. That seems to be the, the the emphasized reason for fasting throughout the Old Testament and even into first century Israel when they were fasting. And even in uh, even in the New Testament, uh, fasting isn't always... It's not specifically called a fast, but Paul in 1 Corinthians speaking of husbands and wives it says not to deprive one another of the of that except for a, an agreed upon season of prayer 
So it could be that you're withholding your things from yourself, rather it be food or whatever, for the purpose of, of focusing more on God, rather that be for a season or for an extended time. But it definitely is, when we see fastings in Scripture, when we see them being done in a, in a manner that pleases God, not like the Pharisees who, who would you know clean themselves up or not, or would make themselves look as bad as possible. Sorry, um, he, Jesus tells us to clean ourselves up, but uh, it was to focus on Him, to focus on God. And that's that's the emphasis on fasting when we see that in Scripture. Okay, um, no problem. Because whenever we talk about fasting, that question never ceases to come up. And it, as I think of uh, many episodes, of beginning with Moses, and then Christ Himself uh, for forty days and nights. Yeah. Now Christ um, being in the wilderness for forty days and forty nights—that that's a whole other animal right there. Um, where you you see the the Son of God who already has humbled himself to take on the form of a man. He is man. He deprives himself for this time and to, to, to emphasize his weakness and his dependence upon... In his, human, in his humanity, he's utterly dependent upon God's provision and protection, even against Satan himself, who comes in and tries to tempt him. Um... So that that's another example of a fast, but for a, 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 a un, that's a unique one. We are not to test God, <laughs> and in fact, that's part of that temptation. You should not put the Lord your God to the test. Um, but we are to be fervent in in prayers, and if God leads you to fast, um, then that too. Uh, sixth. Our thanksgiving to God ought to never cease. Uh, um, it never ceases to amaze me how unthankful I can be <laughs> when I start complaining. You know, we're joking a, a little while ago about uh, what life was like back then compared to now, and and I'm not trying to make an example of anybody. We can all be unthankful. Um, and I'm not saying you aren't. Uh, I'm. What Jesus has done for us should never allow us to not be thankful. I mean, and when we properly comprehend Him, we we will be thankful. And finally, um, seventh, Anna continued to speak about Christ to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Again, her faith became evangelistic, which isn't to say it wasn't before, but it it just exploded. Okay, um, we don't know who's gonna accept Jesus Christ or continue to reject him. We don't know who who the good soil is out there and who the bad soil is back there out there. And it's not for us to know. But what it is for us to know is that Jesus has said, "As you are going, make disciples of all peoples," and we need to be throwing the seed of the gospel out there indiscriminately. 
we we need to be telling people we know who this Messiah is and you need to know him too and if you don't know him you will die in your sins that's what he said and and we need to tell them the Messiah has come particularly at this time of year Um, what an opportunity it always is this time of year to say do you know who this is it strikes me um, that Anna's expectations of the first coming of the Messiah drove her to worship. And the apostles' expectations of the second coming of Messiah drove them to worship. And sometimes I wonder whether or not we truly live with Messianic expectations. Um, and I think if we did, we would worship God more and be more obedient about telling others He's on the way. Because as we saw from Luke eight or seventeen on Sunday, he is on the way. He is on the way, and uh, we'd be more be we'd be more willing to make fools of ourselves to the world for the sake of Christ. I think if we truly lived with that anticipation, the way the scriptures seem to say we ought to be, uh, the way Anna was, she was all about the Messiah, all about the Messiah, and it showed in her great expectations of his coming. And that's how we need to be. All right? Let's pray. Father, three short verses out of the thousands of verses in your word that speak of this woman, Anna, never spoken of again, never spoken of before, but what a testimony she bears to your son. And I I just pray, Father, that we might consider her life such as it was, the, the small amount we're told about her, because there's really a lot there that we can plug into our own lives that, that we can apply. And, and Lord, if, if if there be nothing else we take away from tonight, we see that Anna was all about the coming of the Messiah. And may we be as well. May we to- tell people about his first coming and tell people about his second coming. And, and let people know, Father, that you need to be right with him before that second coming. Uh, Father, just compel us to understand your grace better, to, to understand how you have shown mercy upon us. And uh, may we serve you day and night as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.